Luke chapter 5. So we're continuing this series that we have uh, started together through the gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in Luke. Excuse me. Sorry. We're going to be in Luke together for the next uh, several months. And so this is a key moment in the gospel uh, where Jesus is calling his first disciples and the central uh, figure of that calling, uh, obviously, first of all, is Jesus, uh, but second is Peter, right? Simon Peter. And so a couple of words of expo explanation around the context uh, before we good. There we go. All right. Awesome. So a couple of words of explanation around the context before we dive into exploring the meaning uh, of the passage today. Uh, first of all, this person that gets referred to as Simon, this is the Apostle Peter. Uh, later on, uh, his name gets changed to Peter, which means rock, uh, as part of his confession of who Jesus is. When he makes this confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ that the people have been waiting for, uh, Jesus tells him that based on that confession, he's changing his name to Peter, and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Not meaning that he's going to build the church on Peter, but that he's going to build the church on that confession, the reality of that confession, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So that's who we're talking about here uh, in this, this interaction that Jesus has with the other, some other disciples as well, James and John. Uh, Andrew doesn't get mentioned, um, but Andrew would have been in this scene as well. Andrew is Peter's brother. And so we get these two sets of two brothers, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, all of whom were fishermen. And it tells us that they were actually partners uh, in this fishing business together. James and John uh, under their father Zebedee in the fishing business and they would partner up with Peter and Andrew. Uh, another piece of context here uh, is that we've got the uh, what what's called the Lake of Gennesaret here in this passage. Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee. Okay, maybe you're a little bit more familiar with that term uh, and, and, and with that place, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we're going to put that, uh, an image of that up on the screen real quick. And so this is the area where the ministry of Jesus happens throughout the New Testament, uh, throughout the Gospels. And um, so you'll see the Sea of Galilee there up in the northern area. And you see the city of Capernaum. That is based right there on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is the hometown for Peter, Andrew, and James and John. And so, um, so this is where a lot of the ministry of Jesus gets based here. We know that Peter had a home there in Capernaum. It gets referenced in other places in the Gospels. Uh, and so a lot of the uh, ministry of Jesus is happening here around the Sea of Galilee in this area. Uh, you'll see Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, listed there uh, in that region of Galilee. And then when you move down in the southern region of Judea, you're going to see Jerusalem uh, closer to the Dead Sea, that, that river that connects um, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River, that important river that you hear referenced often. Uh, you'll see from the size of the Sea of Galilee, especially next to where you see the Mediterranean Sea there to the west of it. You'll see uh, the Sea of Galilee, not a sea. All right. 
not a sea. So it gets referred to here as a lake, and Luke often calls it a lake uh, throughout his Gospels. Uh, in Matthew, it's sometimes referred to as a lake as well. Uh, most of the time, though, it gets called a sea, uh, but, but it's a lake, all right? Uh, and, and if you look at the actual, uh, the, the actual size of it, it's really similar, uh, oddly similar in width and in length uh, to, the, to Jordan Lake here, okay? Which is really interesting. Anybody been hanging out on Jordan Lake? Okay, next time you're there, think about that. Like this is, this is like the kind of, almost the exact same size as the Sea of Galilee, where so much of the ministry of Jesus took place. It's really interesting. At least it's fun for me. I nerd out on that, all right? Uh, so that's an interesting piece there. So that's where this is all happening. That's where this is taking place. And this is a key moment here in the calling of the disciples. And as we move through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, I want you to keep that kind of context in mind. Uh, keep this map in your mind. Um, that this is where most of this is taking place throughout uh, the Gospel of Luke. Obviously, Jerusalem is going to come into play, uh, and a major part of Luke's uh, Gospel is this turning point journey where the second half of the book turns towards this journey towards Jerusalem. And so much of the, of, of the Gospel of Luke take, takes up that journey and focuses on that journey. Jesus and his disciples making their way towards Jerusalem, where, of course, Jesus will eventually be crucified and then resurrected in victory. So that, that's what's happening here. Another little piece uh, is that it says that Jesus uh, asks Peter if he can borrow his boat, uh, and he sets out a little bit in the water and then uses the boat as his platform for teaching. And so a couple of things are happening here. Uh, one, we're seeing the popularity of Jesus growing. That as we've seen some miracles taking place and some of the teaching of Jesus happening, the popularity is growing and the crowds are starting to be drawn to Jesus. They're gathering around him. They're hanging on every word that he has to say. They're pressing in on him so much for the fact in this moment they're wanting him to teach, but it's too much of a chaotic environment. And so he asks if he can borrow Peter's boat. It gives him a little bit of a distance there and it elevates him a little bit so that he can speak then to the crowd that would be that would gather on the lake. Also, you've got an interesting dynamic here of the face of the water uh, being able to serve um, as a little bit of an amplification. If you've ever heard that a person speaking and then kind of you, you can hear how the voice is amplified off of the surface of the water. And that's that would be happening here, too, as Jesus is teaching this large crowd. And we see a shift from where we were last week. Last week, we saw Jesus in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And there's a shift in a couple of, of, of ways. One, it's the rejection he experiences in Nazareth versus the reception he gets here of this crowd wanting to hear everything that he has to say and crowding around him, where in his own hometown, they actually tried to kill him, right? After this first sermon that he delivers uh, in his synagogue. And uh, so you've got that difference, pretty significant difference to point out. Uh, but also you have this trajectory of the expansion of the ministry of Jesus. 
So often, we talked about this last week, it's a pattern in the Gospel of Luke. It's also a pattern in the book of Acts, which is also written by the same author uh, as this Gospel. And it's this pattern of ministry beginning in a synagogue. So starting within that religious establishment, but then expanding out beyond the religious establishment. It's not a rejection of Judaism. Jesus starts there. It's not a rejection, it's a call for renewal, and it's a call for restoration, and it's a call for revival within the religious establishment there. And so that's where Jesus begins, and then that ministry expands out beyond the synagogue. And so now he's teaching beside the lake, and we're going to see that happen. Uh, So many of his parables and the images and the brilliance of his teaching, he's constantly drawing from the real world around him agricultural images, fishing images, things from everyday life. And and so we see Jesus is very earthy in that sense, right? He's very rooted in the real world in that sense. And we see it happen even in the places where he chooses to uh, extend and expand his ministry. It's not reserved to the religious structure. It's breaking out of that and beyond that. It includes it. It doesn't reject it, but it, but it is not held back by that, and it's not contained by that only. And so we see this happening as well. From the synagogue now into the wide open, all of creation is his. All of creation is his. And just as he's drawing from imagery from all of creation to use to teach, also all of creation is this classroom uh, that he's pointing to. And he's commandeering as his platform for teaching. So that's a little bit of the the explaining around some of the context. And now let's move into exploring some of what this passage has to say. I love this statement that Jesus makes uh, when he says to Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So after he's done preaching, he then turns to Peter and he says, if you've got a little bit more time, if I could use a little bit more of your time, Peter, put out in deep water. Take us back out to deep water and put down the nets for a catch. A few weeks back, uh, I was uh, meeting with my counselor uh, and he asked me a question which blew my mind which is a pretty regular occurrence, okay? And uh, he asked me this question, and I assumed immediately that I knew the answer to it, and I was really proud. I'm one of those guys who wants to have the right answer, you know, and I, like, throw the right answer out there really quickly. And so he asked me this question. He says, if you're walking out on a surface of ice, like a body of water that's frozen over, and you're walking out on a surface of ice, what's the most important question you need to ask? And I'm like, oh yeah, how thick is the ice? Obviously, right? How thick is the ice? And he just smiles in that knowing way, which he's probably done to a lot of other people. And he answers back, no, that's an important question, but it's not the most important question. The most important question you need to ask is, any guesses? How deep is the water? How deep is the water? And I'm like, oh, that's deep. (laughs) 
but tell me why. <laughs> Sounds cool, but explain it, please. And he's like, listen, if, it's, if, if you're walking out on the ice and it breaks and the water's only ankle deep, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's not really that much of a risk. Yeah, you've got a couple of wet boots and something to laugh at, you know? But that's about it. It's not really that dangerous. But if the water is over your head, then that's a different kind of risk that you're taking when you start to edge out on that ice. The first question you've got to ask is, how deep is the water? In other words, how great is the risk? Jesus says, Peter, I want you to put your boat out. Where? Into deep water. Jesus is deep water. Jesus is deep water. We absolutely celebrate everything that we have to gain from following Jesus, but we must be honest as well about everything that we stand to lose. Jesus is deep water. Jesus is a risk. Following Jesus is a risk. He is deep water. This has the potential to cost you everything in your life if you accept the call to follow Jesus. We celebrate everything that comes from following Jesus. And when we measure it out and we weigh it out, of course it's worth the risk. Absolutely it's worth the risk. The salvation that comes through Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, new life, eternal life in him through his sacrificial death on the cross, driven by his sacrificial love for humanity, including you. His resurrection from the dead, overcoming the power of sin and death. And that reality of a resurrection that happens within us, of being raised from the dead of our sin and into life with Jesus Christ that is possible because of him. Opening up the way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God living within us, guiding us, filling us with not just the power of the Holy Spirit, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So that the character of our lives is visible on the branches of our lives. So that our lives taste good. And our lives become good news to the world around us. All of this that's possible through discipleship in Jesus Christ, through life with Jesus Christ, through saying yes to the invitation and discipleship of following Jesus and walking with Jesus. All of that is so beautiful and we celebrate that and it's possible for you today. If you've never made that decision and that commitment, that surrender to become a follower of Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus, it's the most hopeful life you can imagine. And many of us can speak to the proof of that. But many of us also would say to you, but make sure you're ready. Yes, you can trust him. Absolutely, you can trust him. But, but we need to be honest. There is so much that you stand to lose from following Jesus. That's the reality of it. There is so much that we stand to lose. And Jesus challenges us to weigh that out. To see that 
reality. And as the church, we have to be honest about that. There is cost to discipleship. Jesus says, come follow me. Wonderful, let's go. But where does Jesus go? As we've just said, half of this book is dedicated, this journey where? Towards the cross. Jesus says, come follow me. And he also says, lay down your life and take up the cross. We have to be honest about that reality. Jesus is going to call for permission to edit your life. And if you say yes to him, it's an all-encompassing kind of yes. And he's going to call for permission to edit your life, to edit the budget, to edit the map, to edit the dream list, to edit the goals. The water's deep. The water's deep. That may sound discouraging, but here's the next step to that. And Peter himself discovers this in his life. We'll see that and we'll see that unfold as we move forward. But Peter himself discovers this, just how deep the water is when you say yes to Jesus. He comes face to face with the very real risk and the very real cost of discipleship to Jesus. The water is deep. But Peter also discovers firsthand that this is the person who takes us into deep water, but when we get into deep water, he's the one who knows where the catch is. He's also the one who has the power to speak to the storm when it comes up on the sea and threatens to swallow the boat, and he speaks calm to the storm, and the wind and the waves listen to him and obey. And he's also the one, even though the water is deep, he's also the one who has the ability to walk on top of it and even to ask Peter to be the one to join him out walking on that water. No ice needed. The water is deep. The risk is great, but Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it all. As we move on, Simon answers him, Peter answers him, and he says this, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, in these words from Peter, obviously we have this moment here where he says, but because you say so. And that's the focus of what is happening. But don't skip past the frustration that Peter must be feeling in this moment, the very real and human frustration that he must be feeling, the disappointment that he's feeling over spending all night fishing and he hasn't caught a thing. Now, now here's what we have to remember. This is, fishing is not a hobby for Peter. All right, this isn't just the disappointment of some wasted time. This isn't Peter and his buddies out on some fishing expedition that they hired somebody to take them out on that hopefully they come home with some kind of cool trophy, right? It's not that. This is Peter's livelihood. This is Peter's family business. This is how Peter is supporting himself and his family. From what we get in the context, there's, there are other people here in the boat with them. There's a crew that he has to think about. And he's just spent all night 
fishing and come up empty. In other words, there's financial strain on Peter in this moment. There's the financial stress on him over a night full of work for him and his crew and nothing to show for it. A wasted night of work, a total loss. And he's got to cover his crew. And he knows how much this is costing him. It's like if you own a local shop here on Franklin Street and you hire people to work in the shop and you're paying the rent to have the doors open and the lights on and you're paying for the inventory within the shop and then not a single customer comes in all day long. Think about how much you've lost and that's what's happening for Peter here. It's a total loss. And so in his words, you hear the frustration, you hear the disappointment, you can hear the stress and the strain that this is putting on his life that he's just come through this kind of night. You can also hear a little bit of just probably being annoyed with Jesus. All right. Because Peter is the professional and now this preacher shows up whose dad was a carpenter. And he's like, look, I'm not going to tell you how to build a table, so please don't tell me how to catch fish, okay? My mom grew up in this little uh, fishing village, really, Harker's Island, uh, off the coast of North Carolina here. It's close to Beaufort or Moorhead City, if you're more familiar with them. It's a beautiful little place, this little bridge you've got to take to get there, and uh, amazing little community. And she grew up there, and her, I mean, it goes all the way back. All right? Her family goes all the way back there. Um, and so we're deeply, deeply rooted there, okay? But when I go there, uh, I still feel, even though my, I mean, it goes all the way back, all the way back, right, on my mom's side there. I still feel in many ways sometimes like an outsider. I'm very aware that I'm from Chapel Hill. All right, that's west of Raleigh, so it might as well be California <laughs> to them, okay? And so when I go there, I'm aware of that. They have names for people who are not from the island, all right? You're from off is what they say, just off. You're not from on here, so you're from off, okay? And uh, they have these funny little names for people, and they are the sweetest people, kindest people, but don't tell them how to fish. Do not, like, the livelihood is built around the water there, all right? And if a preacher whose dad was a carpenter shows up and starts telling, no, do not. Do not tell them how to fish. And that's what Peter must be experiencing here. Look, Jesus, this is not your area of expertise. You're a great teacher. I just heard you teaching the boat. That was some really good stuff. But stick to that and let me do the fishing not his area of expertise. And yet, there's something in him that recognizes. Maybe it's a mix of desperation, exasperation, mixed in with a little bit of hope and trust. But there's enough hope and trust there that Peter says, look, I know how to do this, but I confess the way I'm doing it apparently isn't working. So I'll listen. And because you say so, I will do this. Maybe some of you are in that moment right now in your life. The way that you have 
done it has worked so far. You've always found a way to pull it together, to piece it together. The way that you've done it before has worked so far, but now you find yourself in a time it's not working anymore. And the things that you used to do to cope, the things that you used to do to make it through, the things that you used to do to piece together enough hope to keep going, it's not working anymore. And maybe it's out of desperation today. Maybe it's out of exasperation. Maybe there's a little bit, just enough of trust and hope mixed in there. That there's something about this person of Jesus that you're saying, all right. I still don't know if you know what you're talking about. But the way I'm doing it doesn't seem to be working. So because you say so, I'll try it your way. And maybe for you today, the response is as simple as just even where you are, even, even you don't have to do it so anybody else sees you, but maybe just even where you are, assign to him a physical prayer that you're praying, even if you can't put the words together, of just opening up your hands and saying, I've been gripping onto this thing so tight. I've been trying to make my life work. I'm going to open up. And I'm going to say, okay, it's your turn. We'll do it your way. And we'll give that a shot and see where it takes us. In Christianity, sometimes desperation is the purest form of faith. Jesus accepts desperation. He's okay with desperation. <laughs> and maybe that's where you are today. And you need to simply open the hands of your life and say, it's yours. What do you want to do? I've run out of my own ideas. What about you? So here's what happens next. It says that when Peter does this, Peter says, because you say so. What an act of faith. What an incredible act of faith. Because you say so, Peter lets down his nets. In other translations, it says, at your word. At your word, because you've spoken it, I will do it, and I'm trusting your word. So at your word, I will do this. And he lets down his nets, and it says that the nets fill with so many fish that the nets are beginning to break. And as they're trying to pull it into the boat, the boats start to sink. I love this. They're out in the middle. Remember, they're in deep water. All right, this is risk, okay? There's risk with Jesus, and they're probably trying to get back as quick as they can get because the boat is about to sink because of the miraculous catch that Jesus brings into their boats. The nets begin to break, and the boats begin to sink as a result of what Jesus brings about there in their lives. Sometimes I feel that way about Love Chapel Hill, okay? I'll be honest. We joke around sometimes and we say Love Chapel Hill is a dream come true and a logistical nightmare <laughs> at the same time. And there are moments when it's like, wow, look at what God is doing. And other moments when it's like, I think the boat is going down. 
I think it's about to sink. All right, so I can relate somewhat to this. And some of y'all can too, and you're like, amen. That's what you love about it, all right? But for Peter and for James and for John who come over and they try to help and they're pulling in and, and it's, it's about to take the boats under. Something that stands out to me is the reality that, that the nets and the boat represent the everyday apparatus of their lives. This was the form and the structure of their lives before this encounter with Jesus. This is who they were. This is what they did. They saw this as a part of their identity. They saw this as the future that they were going to have, as what they were going to hand down to who was coming next. Probably it had been handed down to them from who, be, who came before them. They were fishermen. They were fishermen. This is what they did. This was their lives. Everything was built around and structured around the lake and the boat and the nets. This is the rhythm of life. This is the form of our lives. This is the shape of our lives. And after this encounter with Jesus, the everyday apparatus of the life that came before no longer had the strength to contain what Jesus was bringing about in their lives. In other words, the new life could not be contained within the old life. The old form, the old shape, the old structure could not hold it, could not contain it. It was overflowing and overpowering what had come before. And there was a tearing and a breaking and a sinking that was happening. This is what happens when Jesus comes into your life. The previous categories no longer work. The previous categories are not strong enough to hold what Jesus is bringing about. The realization that Simon has, that Peter has in this moment, it says that he drops to his knees and he says, go away from me, Lord. I do not deserve to be in your presence. I am a sinful person. This is a really interesting response because you'd think he would just hug him and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And not go away from me. But hey, can we hire you to the crew? Like that was cool. Can we... Let's start this business like I can see how we can scale this thing, you know. But instead, his response is to collapse under the weight of the glory of the recognition of who Jesus is. And he doesn't have the full picture yet. But what's happening here and the early readers would have understood this. They would have seen the connection between what happens with Peter and what they had seen over and over again through what we call the Old Testament, through their Hebrew Bible. As they looked back on that, they would have seen over and over again these instances that we call theophanies. In other words, appearances of God. And when God appears or when a messenger from God appears, then what happens oftentimes is the person who is receiving that, who is encountering God, collapses under the weight of the glory and begs for it to be over. It says, in the presence of this holiness, I am seeing myself for who I really am. All pretense is gone. All of the posturing is gone. Everything that I do to put up a front for everybody else, you've just completely cut through it. And now I see myself for who I really am. 
and they collapse under the weight of that and they beg for it to be over because of the holiness of God. This is a part of the character of God. This is at the heart of who God is. He is holy. And when people come into contact with him, it becomes clear and everything else becomes clear in light of it. And they beg for it to be over because of the holiness of God. But there's another part of the character of God that we cannot miss. It's not just that God is holy, but that God is love. He is holy love. And because God is holy, we could never make our way to him. But because God is love, he makes a way to us. And he comes to us. And that's what's happening in this moment. And so Peter has this reaction to God's holiness. He falls to his knees and he says, go away from me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I'm a sinful man. And he sees himself for who he really is. And then Jesus cuts him off and speaks into it and says, you think you are seeing yourself for who you really are. But I see the full picture of who you really are. What does Jesus say to Peter as a reaction to that? What are Jesus' words? Somebody shout it out. What does he say to Peter? Good guess. Not at this point. He does that later, but not in this moment. He says what? Come on, that's beautiful. Awesome. That's not exactly the words, but that's that's a sentiment. That's a part of what he's saying there. Anybody got it in front of them? What does he say in verse 10? Then Jesus said to Simon, what? Don't be afraid. And then what does he say next? From now on, you will fish for people. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Peter collapses under the weight of the glory that has been revealed, and Jesus continues the revealing. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to commission you, and I'm inviting you into partnership with me. Peter, I see something in you that you could never have seen in yourself. Yes, you came to that realization of your sinfulness and who you are apart from me, but I'm trying to show you who you are in partnership with me, who you are because of me, and who you are going to become. This is what I see in you, Peter. And this is how he answers, don't be afraid, Peter. We see, that all, we see that through so many of the theophanies of the Old Testament. We see it through the New Testament as well. Even in Luke's own gospel, when angels appear to make the announcements, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Hope is here. Hope is here. And hope is driving out fear. And love, perfect love, drives out fear. And he speaks this reality into Peter's life. There is a moment of realization for Peter. There's a moment of response for Peter. And there is a moment of repentance for Peter. And Christianity calls for that. Christianity calls for that. It calls for a moment of realization and confessing the reality of who Jesus is. It calls for a response and the reality of saying, I will follow you. I give my life to you and a repentance that in this following of you, I'm turning away from the old life 
and I'm stepping with you into the new. And then Jesus speaks this commission over Peter's life. I love this because in this we see the full scope of discipleship. You've heard us say this over and over again, but there are three elements of discipleship with Jesus that cannot be separated from each other. And if all three aren't active in our lives, then we aren't walking in full discipleship with Jesus yet. They are the call, come follow me, the cost, lay down your life and take up the cross, and the commission, now go and make disciples. And we see this alive here in this moment. In the calling of Peter, we also get the commissioning of Peter, and Jesus casts his future vision for what his life is going to look like. From now on, you will fish for people. And I'll show you one day, Peter, one day, you know, as this thing gets rolling, it's going to feel like that night of being out there on the boat and not catching a thing. It's going to feel like nothing is going right, Peter. It's going to feel like it's all falling apart. But the day is coming when the catch is going to be so great and you know it's for me and so miraculous that it's not from your own skill, that it will feel like the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking. And that day comes for Peter in the book of Acts in chapter 2, the book that's written by this same gospel writer, Luke. The moment when Peter is the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on those first believers and he preaches the first sermon at the inauguration of the church. And it says 3,000 people became believers in Jesus that day. That's enough to make your, make your boat sink. <laughs> he cast the vision and it became reality. Following Jesus is an all-consuming, all-encompassing yes that will unleash a thousand smaller no's in your life. It is the life-defining yes that will set into motion so many other no's. Because your life becomes oriented around that yes to Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Following Jesus is an all-consuming, all-encompassing yes. And that's what we see here, the, the result and the response. It says that they walked away from everything. They left the nets on the shore. They left the boats on the shore and they followed him and they followed him and the world has never been the same because of this moment right here i love this story it's so powerful but another last piece here that we've got to put together is the reality that this isn't the end of the story here there's another time not in luke's gospel but in another gospel where we get a picture of a miraculous catch of fish. Anybody know where it is? Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, absolutely beautiful. When Jesus multiplies the fish and the bread and he feeds the 5,000 in one instance and 4,000 in another. That's beautiful. That's, that's beautiful. But there's another story too. And this involves the boat and the catch. Okay, there it is, Chris. After the crucifixion and the resurrection. Anybody know where it is? Gospel of John. There it is. John chapter 21. The last chapter 
of the Gospel of John that, that scholars believe to be the last of the Gospels to be written. So the last chapter of the last of the Gospels to be written, the disciples have witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. They were crushed and heartbroken over that. And then that unimaginable joy of witnessing the resurrection of Jesus, of encountering the resurrected Jesus. And so he showed up to his disciples two times in, uh, in John chapter 20. And now the third time that he's appearing to them is in John chapter 21. And it says that the disciples are out fishing. And it gives a list of, I believe it was seven disciples um, that are in the boat there. And it says that Jesus appears on the shore and he calls out to them. They've been fishing all night, it says. And he calls out to them and he says, Have you, haven't you caught anything? And they say, nothing, sir. Mind your own business. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And he says, how about throw your net out on the other side of the boat and try that side of the boat? And they're thinking, this is our job. We grew up in this. We know how to do this. But something in them says to do it. And as soon as those nets hit the water, it says they are filled with fish. And there's a miraculous catch. And immediately for one of the disciples, the picture comes together. And he says, it is the Lord. And what does Peter do? Anybody know what Peter does? He jumps in the water and he starts swimming to shore because he recognizes this is Jesus. It's such a beautiful connection moment between the original calling of Peter the first time and then this on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's beautiful in so many ways, but one of the ways that it's most beautiful is that it's not only on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but it's also on the other side of Peter's greatest failure in his entire life. The moment when Jesus has been arrested, Jesus is being put on trial. He is on his way to the crucifixion and he needs his friends then more than he ever did before. And where are they? They are scattered and hiding. And Peter gets asked the question, wait, weren't you one of his followers? No, not me. No, I'm pretty sure I saw you with him. You were one of his followers. No, 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 no. I, I, I've never met the guy. No, I know it. I know it. You were there. And it says that he curses and says, I do not know him. Three times Peter fails. And now Jesus shows back up. And basically, in his grace and compassion, he calls Peter all over again. And he says, Peter, the story isn't over. The story isn't over with your failure because of my crucifixion, because of your resurrection. I am restarting this again. I am restoring all of this in you. I have the power and the love and the grace to do this. And it says after that, once Peter reaches the shore and Jesus has fish there for them for breakfast on the fire ready for them and they enjoy this meal. And then it says that Jesus pulls Peter aside and he takes a walk with Jesus. What does Jesus say to Peter in that walk? Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Three times he asks Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. 
Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Why are you asking me a second time? Then feed my lambs. Peter, one more time. Do you love me? It says Peter was hurt. And he said, Lord, you know that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep, Peter. What a gracious move by Jesus. The three times that Peter denied him, Jesus gives him three opportunities to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. All on the other side of this miracle that mirrors the way Jesus called him in the first place. To tell him the call is not over, Peter. Your failure does not undercut what I have come to do. Your failure is not stronger than my grace. And when my grace and your sin collide, guess which one is the last one standing? Exactly. And then Peter goes on to fulfill what Jesus, the vision that Jesus cast for his life. He preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's 1,000 people for every one time that, Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus. The overwhelming, overflowing, overpowering grace of the power of Jesus. So much that you are afraid the nets are going to break and the boats are going to sink. And the old way just cannot hold what he's doing now. Where are you today? In all of those different places where we went today, where is he speaking directly to you? Maybe for you, you're in a moment of desperation and you're opening your hands and you're saying, I can't, what, whatever worked before, it's not working now. Will you please take over? Maybe you're getting the sense that the old structures and the old forms just aren't holding it together. And you get the sense that he's doing something new in you and that's frightening. And there's so much fear around that. But you hear him saying, do not be afraid. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Maybe you get the sense that he's inviting you into deep water. And you know that deep water means great risk. And you wonder if you can trust him. And he's saying, I'm not going to lie to you. The risk is great. And the water is deep. But I'm the one who can walk on it. And I'm inviting you to come with me. Maybe he's commissioning you today. Maybe you've sensed it before, that invitation. But you think, no, I mean, everything that's come between that moment and now, I believe that that was real, but also everything I've done between is real and how badly I have failed him. How many times I have screwed it up. There's no way that the offer is still good. And he's saying, I'm still here. And I'm still asking you to follow. And my plan is still good. And I'm here to restore. Where is he speaking to you today? And for many of you, he'll be saying something that I didn't even, would have never thought to have articulated here today. Listen to him. You can trust him. You can trust him. We're going to share... Say that again. I 
said you might not get articulate what you say, but you can lead the people to hear. Oh, praise the Lord! Thank you. That's Sorry, that's. I didn't mean to speak out. No, please, man. This is this is where you're at, buddy. That's the kind of place you're in. So thank you for that. It's awesome. Thank you. All right, we're going to share together in the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. Peter was there. James and John were there. And it's a moment. It's not the breaking of nets, but it's the breaking of bread. And it's even more overflowing and overpowering than this moment that we talked about here. Once again, Jesus takes an everyday item, bread, something that the people also deeply associated with their own past story and the way that God had moved in their lives. And he says, I'm affirming all of that. And I'm also adding a new depth here that you cannot yet comprehend. He took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken to make you whole. And he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world. There is forgiveness for sin in me. There is new life in me. Embrace it. He invites us to come and to embrace his sacrifice today. And to embrace the renewal that comes through it. In just a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward. We're going to have you come out the aisle this way on this side. Uh, you'll be, Miss Lauren is going to let you know when it's your rose turn to go. You'll come out this side, come down, you'll be served. Uh, bread and juice. We invite you to come down then the front row, do a circle back to your seat, and then partake in this last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. And as you do so, ask him to speak his word into your heart today. Ask him to translate what he's trying to say to you. And maybe for you, even the tasting of the bread and the drinking of the cup, you say, this is my prayer to you, Lord. I'm accepting what you've done for me. And in that, I'm opening up my life for what you want to do now. We're yours. It's your name we pray it, Lord. Amen.